Welcome to this episode of Mission Business, a podcast about good business for those in the business of good, presented by your part-time controller, LLC, also known as YPTC. My name is Jennifer Oliva, the host of Mission Business and managing partner at YPTC. In this episode, I speak with Jake Wood, founder and CEO of Groundswell and founder and chairman of Team Rubicon. In our conversation, Jake shares his story as an American military veteran, an award-winning entrepreneur, best-selling author, and keynote speaker. And now, my conversation with Jake Wood. Welcome to Mission Business, Jake. Uh, You've had really an impressive career. Just want to start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? What was your early life like? Grew up uh, in the Midwest mostly, went to high school in Iowa. Pretty normal upbringing, great family, great parents, went to great public schools, all of that stuff, played a lot of sports. I started getting involved in the community early. I was, you know, kind of involved in student government and helping with kind of school-wide student hunger drives and things like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, nothing, nothing out of the ordinary growing up. Then you joined the military after college or after high school. What what prompted you to do that? Yeah. Um, well, I, after high school, I went to the University of Wisconsin and played football there for four years, which was a pretty unremarkable career because I wasn't very good at football. But it was a great experience. After that, I you know I was, I was graduating my senior year and trying to evaluate what was going to be next in my life. It was two thousand five, so a couple of years removed from nine eleven, and you know the country was still engaged in conflict in both Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, for me, it was. You know, I looked at an opportunity to serve my country, and you know, I felt like the the cost of the war had been borne by all of my colleagues who were less fortunate than than I was to have been on a football scholarship at the University of Wisconsin. So, decided to enlist, enlisted into the Marine Corps, chose the infantry, and uh, you know began my my time as a Marine. I've spoken to many uh, folks on this very show that have served in the military, and I'm always curious how your time in the military prepares you to be a leader in the nonprofit sector and or the private sector now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it certainly it was it was foundational to who I am as a, as a leader and as an entrepreneur, particularly in the Marine Corps. When you think about what the, the lessons were that translate into the nonprofit sector, particularly for Marines, it's, it's the ability to do more with less. I mean, talk about a, mm-hmm. a branch of service that gets all the hand-me-downs from the Army and and doesn't have the big blockbuster budgets of the Air Force or the Navy. And yet, you know, you get the hardest missions and and you, you have no choice but to execute and succeed. And in many ways, it's like running a nonprofit. You know, you got to scrape together that budget every year and find a way to deliver impact, often with fewer resources than you'd like. Beyond that, there were, there were so many lessons. I often tell people I learned how to be an entrepreneur while running operations in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, particularly my time in Afghanistan when I was with the sniper unit, you know, really dangerous missions, but just so much complexity and ambiguity and uncertainty, like all those elements that are really common within uh, any sort of entrepreneurial endeavor and the stakes are really high. You don't have the resources that you need or that you want. You have limited information and yet you've got to find a way, right? And, and you know, I found myself doing that for four years in the highest stakes imaginable. And I think I just became very comfortable with navigating that type of chaos and that complexity. And it probably served me pretty well, having now started a couple of companies. So I, I definitely credit my my time in the Marines with a lot of what I've been able to do since then. It's fantastic. So I guess after you left the Marines, 
was that when you founded Team Rubicon? Yeah, so I got out of the Marine Corps after four years, and it was late 2009. And so we were still kind of in the depths of a recession post-financial crisis. Not a great time to transition you know, out of the military. And so my plan initially was to go get my MBA. I figured I'd take two years, mm-hmm. do some decompression, uh, and... Well-deserved. Yeah. Well, you know, I... <laughs> Yeah, I felt like two years away from that stress would be good. And the other thing I realized was that, you know, graduating from, you know, kind of the, the type, the, the part of the Marine Corps that I was in, I wasn't graduating with, with a network, which is really one of those important things as you're trying to break into, you know, the business world, particularly if you're going to be doing it in the middle of a recession. So that was the plan. I started to apply to graduate schools. And about two months after I got out, the Haiti earthquake happened. So this January 2010. And I'm watching that disaster unfold and I am motivated to help in some way because I I haven't yet begun my graduate school journey. And so I called a couple of organizations that were on the ground and tried to convince them that I had the necessary experience and skill set, having come back from a couple of war war zones to help. And, (laughs) you know, I I think they were staring down one of the worst humanitarian catastrophes of the last century and, and having some random guy call him up and tell him, how special he was probably wasn't the top of their priority list. And I definitely get that now. But at the time, didn't really want to take no for an answer. So I you know, worked with a couple of Marines and we, we organized a team of veterans and doctors and went down to Port-au-Prince, the capital, just a couple of days after the earthquake and started running medical triage clinics on the ground. And we started raising money via my personal PayPal account. And this thing just snowballed and kind of went viral before going viral was a thing. And, you know, we raised uh, nearly $200,000 wow. into my personal PayPal account. And there was an attorney in Minneapolis who I'd never met who kind of stumbled across this blog that we were keeping as, with our efforts on the ground. Mm-hmm. And this this attorney was a former Marine. So I think he felt a connection to what we were doing. And he, he called up my dad and said, your son is exposed to a ton of liability, both from uh, mm-hmm. you know, general liability, but also just financial and tax liability. Uh, he needs to incorporate as a nonprofit immediately. And you know, my dad wow. fortunately said yes. So this attorney incorporated what would become Team Rubicon as a 501c3 up in Minnesota. So you know, it, a lot of people ask, hey, why is Team Rubicon a Minnesota nonprofit? It makes no sense. Interesting. That's the story. And so- you know, we, we, we really launched this thing by accident, best mm-hmm. accident that ever happened to me. And now 13 years later, it's got 150,000 registered volunteers and operates disaster and humanitarian missions globally and domestically. You are, were on the forefront of marketing for a cause or, or raising money in a crowdsourced way. Not a lot of people were doing that back in, what year was that? You know, January, 2010. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the tools didn't exist. You know, you think about you know, fundraising platforms today, uh, you know, a lot yeah. has evolved in the last almost 15 years. Back then it was a, it was a donate with PayPal button. Um, imagine how far we've come. Yeah, I'm sure it, it, over your time at Team Rubicon, it, your fundraising abilities and the technology significantly grew. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that first year, I think the organization did about $250,000 in, in donations and 80% of that happened in the first two weeks of inception. Last year, the organization closed the books, including Gift and Kind, at over $100 million. So, 
you know, what is that 400x growth in, in 13 years? So you were kind of thrown in as were you the executive director immediately at, at Team Rubicon? And you were kind of thrown into this role by accident. So how did you take it from there when you got back from Haiti and set all of this up? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, we incorporated with me as the president of the nonprofit, and and I, I didn't even know what a five hundred one c three was when when I was informed that I was the president of a five hundred one c three. That that didn't even mean anything to me. So there was a a lot of learning that had to happen, and you know, I think, you know, we were like most nonprofit founders, we were passionate about the cause that we were building. And, and when you have that passion, you're willing to endure a lot. And we, we did. Our success was never preordained. I can guarantee you that. I mean, we uh, almost went out of business several times for the first couple of years. And, and only, you know, probably in the last five years have really felt like the organization was on firm year over year financial footing. But I had to learn uh, everything about running a nonprofit, you know, being executive director, what does fundraising look like? How do you apply for grants? How do you report back on grants? What is a restricted fund? I had no idea. Um, <laughs> you know, c- compliance, audits, all of Accounting. that stuff. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> listen, I had an undergraduate degree in business. Guess how much that means? It means literally nothing. So, you know, I had to approach it with a lot of humility, knowing that I didn't have the answers, had to seek advice from people that knew better and and just show up to work every day, willing to grind and willing to learn. What do you think some of your biggest successes were at Team Rubicon? I think if I look back on some of the things I think we did right, and of course, people could argue otherwise, but we really invested early in storytelling. We didn't hire our first professional fundraiser until five years into the organization, mm. which was probably a strategic mistake. I'm not going to go out there and tell everybody <laughs> that, oh, that was a really smart move. I think we, yeah. we probably should have made that hire two or three years earlier. But what we invested in was storytelling. You know, how do we first do good work on the ground? Like storytelling doesn't matter if you're not doing good work, although some people, of course, try. But first do good work and then tell really compelling, emotional stories that move people to action. And our, our philosophy was if, if we are doing good work and we are telling a good story, we're going to get volunteers, we're going to find donors. And eventually what happened was those things happened, right? People supported us mm-hmm. both because of the good work we were doing and the way that we were communicating it so transparently. But we also, I think, kind of stumbled into this brand, right? We built a brand we didn't just have a communication strategy. We built an, an identity, a brand that had uh, brand values that conveyed certain things that that was intentional in every way. And, and what that what resulted then was we had a brand that companies wanted to partner with. Most nonprofits really struggle to get big corporations and brands on board. Mm-hmm. Whereas for us, I mean, I'd say fifty or sixty percent of our revenue still to this day is coming from corporate uh, sponsors and not just corporate foundations, but, you know, cause marketing budgets and things like that. And it was because we were very deliberate about creating a brand that they wanted to align with. I mean, the most recent example, just last month, uh, Ford Motor Company announced, a, I think, a $6 million grant, but I think on top of it, nearly 30 vehicles um, out of their new electric truck line because they want to tell the story of those vehicles going into these disaster zones and supporting like the really hard work that our volunteers do. And we had a brand that 
you know, one of the most iconic corporate storytellers in America wanted to partner up with. What are some of the most memorable moments or missions that you've been part of at Team Rubicon or your team has been part of? Honestly, there's just so many, it's hard to even count. I mean, the organization's responded to over a thousand crises in the last decade. So, you know, and it ranges from the the major stuff, you know, the Hurricane Harvey, the Hurricane Maria, the mm -hmm. recent earthquake in Turkey, the Ukraine war to the small stuff. You know, it's the these small disasters in rural America that nobody ever hears of, but that are completely overwhelming to the local community. Um, and I've been in I don't know, probably close to a hundred disaster zones. Again, ranging from the big stuff to the to the really small stuff that nobody would ever hear of. Mm. Um, but you know, I think back to some of the seminal moments for the organization, and they, they were the moments that either could have broken us, but ultimately ended up making us. You know, and they were moments where we had to bet on ourselves. When COVID nineteen hit, yeah, and, you know, nearly every company went through a similar vein. We. Mm. You know, we didn't have a playbook for how to respond to a, an infectious disease outbreak on U.S. soil. We had medical teams that had responded internationally to infectious disease outbreaks. But, you know, what we were facing was unprecedented, obviously. And I remember, you know, as this as the U.S. shut down, I, I looked at, you know, I got my executive team together, said to my CFO, I want three scenarios, bad, ugly, and we're out of business. And I looked at my chief programs officer and I said, I want you to launch the most aggressive operation. And I don't even know what it looks like. I don't even know what we're mm -hmm. going to do, David, but I want you to be as aggressive as we've ever been because this is the moment that matters for the organization. If we don't rise to the occasion here for these communities, what do we even exist for? And oh, by the way, I don't care what the CFO comes back with. That's how we're going to approach this. I felt the same way uh, with our firm too. It's like, well, of course, all of our clients, nonprofits, we were concerned about their viability through COVID and their ability to to survive. But I think like you, you know, they had to hit the ground running. They had a lot, depending on what type of organization they were, they had a lot of work to do. And it was more important than ever. Yeah. In the in the military, you call it going Winchester. Um, you know, it's <laughs> a, kind of a smoke them if you got them approach. That was the attitude we took. We're going to expend every resource we have to help communities in this okay. hour of need. And if we don't survive it, it will have been, you know, done in good faith. What some what were some of the key challenges during COVID that you had? Well, I mean, there were there were plenty. I mean, we we immediately knew that food bank volunteers were going to evaporate because they tend to be older. We never have worked in food banks in our life, but we took our volunteers and pushed them into partnership with Feeding America and basically backfilled a lot of their operations and logistics. We partnered with major metropolitan areas like New York City and Chicago and managed logistics for their like PPE distribution and things like that. Um, we took over medical services for Navajo Nation and ran medical services in Navajo wow. Nation for six straight months, treated 10,000 patients. We ran mobile uh, mobile testing sites in partnership with a couple of healthcare companies. And then, you know, the, probably the biggest challenge was Mother Nature didn't give a damn, right? So mm -hmm. that fall, there was a massive hurricane season. And we had to figure out how to meet that need in a COVID compliant manner. And one of the challenges that we faced, obviously, you know, how do you deploy volunteers that are going to be communally living in a disaster zone and keep them protected against COVID pre-vaccine? Mm -hmm. Um, one of the major challenges that that poses is that a lot of our volunteers are actually retired. Um, you know, they're yeah. former military, they're retired, and as a result, they can deploy very frequently. 
And we had to restrict their deployability because they were most at risk. And that mm-hmm. created a storm internally. I mean, we it was one of the hardest decisions I had to make and stick by because- Meaning it, like the volunteers were up in arms, meaning they wanted to get out there yeah. and you were restricting it. Yeah, uh, yeah, of course. They, they wanted- Had to, for their safety. For the, and you know, a lot of them understood. A lot of them didn't. Mm-hmm. A lot of them thought it should be personal choice. And I had to do- not just what was best for the organization, but what I thought was best for them, because ultimately their safety is my responsibility. And so, yes, I believe in personal choice, but um, you know, as a leader, I have an obligation to uh, to them. And sometimes that makes that means making really unpopular decisions. Yeah, yeah. So making unpopular decisions—that's one essential uh, component of being a great leader. Sometimes, what are some others? What are some other skills? and qualities that you think are essential for leadership, especially in crisis situations? I think one of the most important things leaders can do in crisis is is be transparent and be vulnerable. I really had no choice but to be humble and vulnerable early as a CEO because I, I didn't know what I was doing. And if I had tried to fake it, people would have immediately seen right through that. I, I think I know what I'm doing now, generally speaking, but you know, I still encounter situations all the time that I don't have a plan for, and then I don't know how they're going to resolve. You know, four months ago, my my new company almost lost $10 million that were held at Silicon Valley Bank. Um, you know, I woke up one day and my bank had a run on it and I didn't wow. get my money out. And so I had to come to the team and say, we've got payroll in four days and I don't think we're going to make it. And in fact, it might not just be payroll. We may not survive if these funds are truly uninsured. And it wasn't about putting up armor and pretending like I had a plan or any of that. It was it was like being very transparent and being very blunt, embracing the reality of what we were facing, convincing them that I'm going to do everything in my power to solve it, but that i not pretending like I knew how. How would you put that moment or that crisis up against some of the other things that you've been up I, against in your life? I, you know, it was some of the craziest 48 or 72 hours I, I've ever experienced, honestly. Um, you know, until I woke up Friday morning and saw that the FDIC had, had seized the bank. But even then, like, there's, you know, nobody yeah. knew what was going to happen after, even after that. Yeah. Um, you, get your, you know, 250,000 out of 10 million. Yeah. Uh, that's not going to work. Yeah. So, but luckily they came through. Yeah. It was just, just one of those things where you had a total lack of control. You know, mm-hmm. which and those are the those are the moments that are most terrifying for anybody. It's just human nature. If you if you cannot control your environment, there's an inherent fear, and so then controlling your fear becomes the most important thing that you can do. And um, you know, one of the things you learn very early in the in the military is panic is contagious, and so it's it's so incumbent upon the leader to not again not shy away from the moment and the the reality of it, but yet to convey a calm, cool, and collected demeanor and convince people that we will find a way to overcome because just like panic being contagious so is so is courage so is leadership all of those things something i read regarding one of the things you're very proud of from team rubicon is building a fantastic culture among your staff what would you say was your culture like and how did you build that culture I, I was lucky to have been a part of incredible cultures in my previous two roles. So, 
you know, University of Wisconsin football team, you know, really well known for the culture that it creates. And similarly, a lot of people talk about military culture and people laud it. It's not perfect. There's a lot wrong with it. It's changing. It's got to evolve. But there is something unique and special about military culture and what it can do and provides to those servicemen and women. And within the military, then the Marine Corps is like on a level all its own. And so I think we knew early that we wanted to be deliberate in building culture. And we kind of started with that military in mind. And our, I, our concept was like, let's take everything that is special and unique and value add about the military culture, but leave all that stuff that was so easily identifiable as toxic, which again, mm-hmm. there, there's plenty of. Um, and so that was a great starting point. And because 70, 75, 80% of our volunteers early on were military, it was, it was actually very easy to do and to do a scale. But, you know, what is the, what is our culture? It's one rooted in love, you know, love of service, love of country, love of community, love of one another. It's one of accountability. It's one of selflessness, you know, and I think if you start with those things at a foundation, like you can do some pretty unique and special Mm -hmm. things. Fantastic. Um, And the way that, the way that we thought about culture was, when you think about what Team Rubicon did, you know, we deployed volunteers who oftentimes never had met one another to communities that they'd never been to in the aftermath of a disaster. Like it's a recipe for disaster, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, what you, what you hear consistently in the, in the military and the Marine Corps is culture guides decisions in the absence of orders. So the only way that we could confidently deploy these volunteers to these disaster zones is if we had confidence that our culture would consistently guide those volunteers to the right decisions and actions in the absence of me being on the ground telling them what right. to do. In the absence of orders. I love that line. So we we wouldn't have ever been able to scale if we hadn't been able to rely on our culture to guide those volunteers on those missions all around the globe and all you know in every corner of the country. Culture so important in any business that you run. I know it from our business, and it's a key component of our success. I noticed that you were best place to work, uh, Team Rubicon. We are proud to say that here at your part time controller. So I get it. I I think culture uh, plays an enormous part in the success of uh, any any business, any venture, any nonprofit. We talk about accounting a lot on this uh, and financial management for nonprofits on this podcast. It's what we do at your part-time controller. So curious about your accounting and financial management at Team Rubicon and how your team, you mentioned your CFO, how did that help you be a better leader with great financial management and accounting? Well, I mean, it was definitely a journey. The first year at Team Rubicon, 2010, you know, I tried to keep the books myself thinking, oh, I, I graduated from Accounting 101 class at Wisconsin. I can do this. And I mean, then I brought in a, an accountant uh, as a volunteer and, and she spent two months trying to undo everything that I had done. Um, <laughs> Jake, we walk into that Oh, I bet. I mean, it's, I think people fail to understand just how important it is and and not just so that they can manage the business better, but so that they can stay on the right side of the law. And and so that, that was really important. She started as a volunteer. She then came as on as a contractor. She finally worked full time for us. And she, she only just retired from Team Rubicon last month to Pauly Meta, uh, you know, as, as old school as it gets within TR. But even with her on board, I was still doing all the 
FP&A work and all the budgeting and planning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I felt like I was sufficient at that. But there was a point in time where I just knew that it was it was beyond my capability and beyond this. You know, I had all these other responsibilities that mounted. Yes, your time. So we brought in a CFO um, probably around the time we, we were a five to seven million dollar a year organization. And that was a relief. You know, I could go and just ask for scenarios. I could ask for projections. And then, you know, the next day I'd, I'd have them on my desk. And, you know, we, mm-hmm. we really more formally pulled together a finance committee on the board. And we had some great, mm-hmm. uh, sharp board members who were really helpful and just, you know, not prescriptive in what we needed to do, but really serving as, as guardrails in how we were approaching our burn and our growth. It was critical to get right. And, you know, but even... You know, bringing that CFO on board, we we definitely uh, over the last decade uh, continued to underinvest in uh, finance and accounting, and we saw that uh, creep up about eighteen months ago, where mm-hmm. uh, AP, AR, all that stuff was just completely overwhelmed, uh, led to burnout. We had people transition out. We had to you know really rebuild that team and and actually just commit to not just replacing the people that burned out and left, but adding net new resources because it, it's it's a really easy part of the business, in particular in the nonprofit space, to underinvest in because everybody's worried about their admin and overhead costs. And and that's really frustrating because ultimately, it, yeah. it, long-term, it, it yields poor results. And the investment in it yields excellent results yeah. uh, because if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business and it, it really will catch up to you yeah. in the long run that we found. A hundred percent wish we would have had a resource like YPTC when we were, you know, scaling from a half million to five million. It would have been a much better solution than what we had. So after a few years, I guess, how many years were you at Team Rubicon? I was CEO for... 11 and a half years. Wow. So at some point, you're like, okay, I'm going to move on or retire from this, start a new venture. So did you have some runway uh, into looking for your successor? How did that all work? Yeah. I mean, we, we started thinking about succession planning, um, you know, probably after four or five years. And, you know, I'm a big believer that every organization has to evolve. And part of that is the leaders who lead them. And it was never my goal to run Team Rubicon for the rest of my life. I don't think that that would have been, that would not have been fulfilling to me, even though it was the greatest job in the world. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it would have been fair to the organization because there's plenty of people more qualified than I am to run it. But I knew I was going to run it for as long as I should, I guess, right? As mm-hmm. long as I was the right person to do it. So I brought in a, a, a COO in 2016 or 2015 or 2016, super qualified, amazing guy, former Top Gun pilot, squadron commander in the Navy. Like every day I would go to work and say, I can't believe this guy actually does what I tell him to do. And honestly, when we brought him in, I thought that that transition period would maybe be two years, maybe three years max. And it, it lasted five or six um, before I was mm-hmm. finally ready to hand over the reins. And you know, his name's Art Delacruz. He'll tell you, I mean, we had the most amazing working relationship, but you know, I my, my plan had actually been to to step down in 2020, 10 years in, uh, and of course that got just derailed by COVID. Yeah. So as soon as COVID hit, I knew okay, I can't step away until I know that the organization is going to survive this. And then late in 2020, when it was clear that we were going to survive it financially, it was also clear that 
you know, the organization was going to have to emerge a different organization. Like the world had just changed and it just felt like it was the right time to bring in a new leader to lead that change. So I, my second daughter was born near Thanksgiving that year. And I looked at my wife and I said, I think I'm going to leave Team Rubicon. And she looked at me and she said, you're out of your mind. We just had a second child and you don't have a plan. What um, are you going to do? And she asked me, she said, what do you, what do you think you're going to do? And I said, I don't know but I'll mm. never figure it out if I don't commit to walking away. And, and I shouldn't say walk away. I'm still heavily involved. It's still sure. near and dear to my heart, but you know, to walk away from the day to day. So you did not have a plan when you left. I had zero plan when I made the decision to step away. That's, that's pretty gutsy. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean. But it sounds like you've been kind of gutsy your whole yeah, life. So I, think, <laughs> I think it was kind of par for the course, honestly. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think a lot of founders out there listening will relate to what I'm going to say, which is I never, thinking about starting something else or what would be next felt like cheating on Team Rubicon if I was doing that while I was still CEO. Like, mm -hmm. if, I'm, if I'm in it, I'm in it to win it. I'm all in. I can't afford the brain space to think about things other than Team Rubicon and my obligations to it. So, but was what was amazing is the moment that I made the decision, I communicated it to the board. I went to my COO, Art, and said, Art, like, the time has come. It's time. Tapping you on the shoulder. And, uh, you know, we put together a, a thoughtful transition plan. It's not like I walked yeah. out the door. So we took, you know, a couple of quarters to start communicating to donors and staff and all that stuff. As soon as I granted myself the liberty to start thinking about what was next, I just started coming up with ideas. How many ideas did you have before you found one? I think I had probably 100, 95 of them were really bad. And I think that was one of the things that always scared me at, when I was running Team Rubicon. You know, when I would think about the time to step away, I. I was just scared that I would never find another company to start or company to join that would be as purposeful um, and impactful as Team Rubicon. And so I, as soon as I started developing the concept for Groundswell, I just knew that that, that was it. Our listeners who might not be aware of what Groundswell does um, tell us about its mission. Even It's a for-profit, yep. uh, similar to your part-time controller. We're a for-profit with purpose yep. and mission, uh, serving nonprofits. Yeah, so uh, we're a software company backed by Google Ventures, and uh, we've built a, a tech-enabled donor-advised fund platform. And, and what that means is, you can kind of think of what we have as two products. One is the world's most modern and affordable donor-advised fund. Anybody can download our app from the App Store, create a donor-advised fund in 60 seconds with no fees. How the company really makes money is we sell a platform to companies that allows those companies to roll donor advised funds out to their employees as an employee benefit and then automate giving and matching programs into them like a 401k or an HSA for charitable giving. And we have a lot of product extensions that we're exploring that are pretty exciting as we think about kind of the versions 2.0 and 3.0 of what a philanthropy as a service platform can be. Philanthropy as a service. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think one of the things I observed raising hundreds of millions of dollars at Team Rubicon was the disparity in how rich people give and how the rest of us have to give. And I felt as though there was an opportunity to to narrow that gap and give anyone in the United States the opportunity to give as efficiently as a millionaire. So that's what we're hoping to do. Talk about the benefits of a donor advised fund. 
Yeah. So I, you know, DAR advised funds get frequently vilified and, and for good reason, right? You know, there's $150 billion estimated uh, sitting aside in donor advised funds. And as a former nonprofit operator, of course, that's money that's not, you know, funding my operations. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, donor advised funds themselves are not inherently bad. That's just how some rich people are using them. And it's just to sit on capital. And that's that's not good. But what they afford is for people to give more effectively and more efficiently. You can do things like donate non-cash assets into a donor advised fund and avoid capital gains taxes. You know, I always tell people, you know, when they ask, why would you need one? I'm like, rich people don't donate cash, right? Rich people don't go to a website, put down their Amex and donate a thousand bucks. They donate stock. They donate other assets. And so not everyone in this country has the liberty of owning stock outside of a retirement plan or owning other assets that they might give to charity. So that's that's one thing. It centralizes all of a user's giving. It allows them, if they do have a principal balance in their account, to invest it for tax-free growth. We're really aimed at building tools that help people move money more efficiently to charity, not necessarily sit on capital in their DAF. Um, that's not our motivation, and it's why we haven't monetized that. So we wanted to align our company's financial incentives with moving money to charity, not amassing assets under management. So the mechanics of how Groundswell works, it's employees of the companies that you serve and or the employer could donate or move uh, funds into the donor advised fund of the employee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So it, you can think of it like a HSA or a 401k. Employees get these accounts. Our platform allows companies to give or match funds into it. A company advertising agency out of New York used to give $100,000 a year to charity to two different charities that the founder and CEO that were near and dear to him. And he realized like, okay, we're putting $100,000 against these two causes that matter to me, but they don't necessarily matter to my people. So it's good for me. It's not necessarily good for them, though they could admit that like, it's great the company gives back, but it doesn't reflect what I as an individual employee care about. So instead, they rolled out Groundswell and they gave every employee $2,000 in their Groundswell account free and clear to give to whatever mattered to them whenever, however they wanted. Some people gave $2,000 to a single charity. Some people gave it across 20 different charities. Some people set up recurring donations. So it's, it, you know, it's really about how do you unlock the generosity of your employees? Now, not every company, there are a lot of companies out there I'm finding are happy with 4% participation. They like mm-hmm. saying that they offer donations, but they really don't care, could not care less if employees actually participated because it costs money. How do you connect, or if you do, I'm not sure you do, nonprofits um, to your potential donors? Yeah. So right now we have all IRS registered charities in our database. So so nonprofits don't have to do anything in order to you know be on the platform and receive money. And one of the things about folks that are new to the philanthropy is it's intimidating, right? There's there's literally over a million nonprofits in the U.S. How do you sift through mm-hmm. those and find ones that matter to you? And I, I think as we look at the advent of artificial intelligence and machine learning, there are going to be some really interesting applications in that discovery process for individual users. Do you think you'll be on the forefront of that? And we intend to be on the forefront of everything. That was my conversation with Jake Wood, American military veteran, founder, CEO, chairman, best-selling author, and keynote speaker. 
Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Mission Business Podcast. We look forward to bringing you more stories of innovation and perseverance from nonprofits around the world. I want to thank the team at PWP Video for their guidance and assistance in the development and production of this podcast. They are a great partner for Media with a Mission, and you can find them at pwpvideo.com. Additional information about this episode can be found at missionbusinesspod.com. And follow us on social media at Mission Business Pod on Instagram and Facebook and at Mission Biz Pod on X, formerly known as Twitter. I want to thank our guest, Jake Wood, American military veteran, founder, CEO, chairman, best-selling author, and keynote speaker. This podcast was produced by Erica Blair and Gerilyn Dressler of Your Part-Time Controller, LLC. Dave Winston and Michael Schweizheimer are our producers from PWP Video, and the show was directed and edited by Pat Ganley. Again, I'm Jennifer Oliva, and we'll see you here next time on Mission Business, presented by Your Part-Time Controller, LLC.